0: In my closet lies a pair of black and white Converse sneakers. I love those shoes and they've been with me a long time. I bought them shortly after being hired for my first teaching job as an art teacher at a lockdown high school where I quickly realized that practical shoes were in order. And practical shoes they have been. I wore them through my years teaching at that first school and then several more years of teaching at a different school. I've worn them to hospitals to stay with parents and grandparents, and I've worn them on vacations to Disneyland. I've worn them to volunteer in my children's classrooms and to board airplanes. I've worn them to set up booths at Quilt Market, and I've worn them to clean bathrooms at my church building. I've worn them in good times and in bad, during feast and famine. And I wore them, just this morning, over to the gas station to grab a soda. I've had these shoes for a long time now, Um. I'd say more than 15 years, they're my comfort shoes. They've been with me through so much. Often when I slip them on, I'm transported back to a time that I had previously worn them. That time I wore them on that really cool pier. The time I got a speeding ticket with all my kids in the car. That time I wore them square dancing. And the time I wore them with a purple velvet jacket to go see Neil Diamond in concert on a hot August night. Now that was a good time. I love Neil Diamond. Let's just get that out of the way. I've been to more concerts than I can count, seeing everyone from Kenny Rogers to Iron Butterfly and from the B-52s to Offspring. I love music and concerts, but the person I have seen more than anyone else is good old Neil Diamond. Recently, I went to his farewell tour with my parents and siblings. And it was so good, so good, so good. And of course, I wore my Converse and my blue jeans. I cannot go to a Neil Diamond concert and not wear blue jeans. Now, if you know me, you might argue that I wear blue jeans all the time. It's like my uniform. So of course, that's what I'd wear, you say. But if you're also a Neil Diamond fan, you'll be familiar with the song Forever in Blue Jeans. Forever in Blue Jeans is one of my favorite songs and is the unofficial soundtrack to my marriage. Two poor kids in love who put each other through school to become what they've always wanted to be, teachers. Always just scrimping by, always picking outside jobs to buy groceries, but always happy to be together wearing our blue jeans and that same pair of Converse for almost two decades. Money Talks. But it don't sing and dance and it don't walk. As long as I can have you here with me, I'd much rather be forever in blue jeans.
1: 20th 1873 an American icon was born an icon that would gain popularity not only in our country but around the globe an icon that almost 150 years later I bet can be found in your closet and that's because back in May of 1873 blue jeans were born. Actually, Blue Jeans had been around previous to May 20th of 1873, but it was on that date that Levi Strauss and Jacob Davis obtained a U.S. patent on the process of how to create it. Here's how it happened. Jacob was a tailor working in Nevada when one day he was approached by a local woman who asked if it was possible to create a pair of trousers for her husband that would not fall apart. After much thought, Jacob came up with the idea of using rivets. Trousers seemed to rip, tear, and come apart at certain points where the fabric could become strained, such as at the pocket corners and at the base of a button fly. However, if he could reinforce those areas with rivets, those weak points in construction would be strong, thus giving those trousers a longer lifespan. A riveted pair of trousers made from denim were sewn up, and the idea worked. The combination of durable denim with riveted pockets and fly made for a sturdy, almost indestructible pair of pants, and soon Jacob had orders for these trousers flooding in. Jacob knew these pants were a hit and wanted to patent this new process, but needed a business partner, and so he wrote to Levi Strauss. Strauss was born in Bavaria, but immigrated to New York at the age of 17 to live with his two older brothers who had come to the United States. These brothers owned and operated a dry goods store called J. Strauss Brother and Company. After learning the tricks of the trade and at the young age of 24, Strauss moved to San Francisco to set up a West Coast branch of the business. For the next 20 years, Strauss successfully built his company, selling goods and services to people throughout the region, which is how he came to meet Jacob Davis. Strauss was the textile distributor who sold Jacob the denim that was used to create his trousers. When Strauss received a letter from Davis proposing a business partnership, he jumped at the idea. Before long, patent number 139,121 was granted, and pants as we know them would be forever changed. At the time, these trousers were only made for men, Women's jeans wouldn't be introduced until 1934 and were called waist overalls because they only came to the waist and did not include the -the over-the-shoulder bib. It wasn't until late 1950s that this style of pants would come to be known as jeans. However, in reality, this first pair of copper riveted pants was the blueprint for what we know today as 501 jeans. In fact, Little has changed in the design or construction of Levi's since that original pair was created. Sure, the leg widths have changed over time and small design elements like the addition of a second pocket to the back, a red flag saying Levi's sewn into that pocket, and a back leather waist tag have been added. But overall, that original design was a classic that would remain a constant to be reproduced millions of times over. Today, blue jeans are a cultural necessity and drum up a variety of nostalgic feelings that include the ideas of hard work, rugged strength, and the dignity of completing an honest day's work. We have grown up with blue jeans. Our fathers have worn them, cowboys have worn them, rock stars have worn them, and currently on any given day, half the population of the entire planet is wearing blue jeans. They have become part of our everyday life. I'm wearing a pair right now. Who knew that two guys, some copper rivets, and a pile of denim cloth would unknowingly have enough power to change the course of fashion forever?
0: Today's episode is sponsored by Baby Lock. March is National Quilting Month, which gives us an opportunity to tell you about one of our favorite long-arm quilting machines. The Baby Lock Coronet. The Coronet is one of the easiest machines we have ever used to load quilts onto. In fact, from loading to threading, everything about the Coronet is intuitive and user-friendly. Plus, with the Coronet's base measuring only five feet across, it is a manageable size to put in any sewing room. I love the Coronet, and it is the machine that I use every time I quilt a quilt. To find out more about the coronet, visit your baby lock dealer or visit babylock.com.
1: In the 1740s, a 16-year-old girl named Eliza Pinkney was sent a packet of seeds from her father in the Caribbean. Born in Antigua and raised on her father's plantation in South Carolina, Eliza was familiar with the power of planting and raising crops. So she planted those seeds: indigo seeds. Originating in India, indigo had historically been rare and expensive, and because of that became a symbol of status and wealth. Variations of indigo at the time could also be found in Vietnam, West Africa, and the tropics. Mainly, what it needed to grow was the right environment, an environment that included heat and humidity, the same kind of environment where cotton thrived an environment exactly like South Carolina. And so the seeds were planted and they grew. Before long, Eliza had herself a thriving crop of indigo, a crop which became a cash crop, and for a time was second only to rice, in abundance of production in the American colonies. It is interesting that cotton and indigo both need to be raised under the same conditions, Cotton and indigo seem to be made for one another. Cotton loves indigo, really loves indigo. Cotton will soak up that blue dye and hold it, color fast, for virtually forever. It's a pair made in heaven. And because cotton and indigo were both produced side by side, it's no surprise that by the mid-1800s, when Levi Strauss was buying denim, made from 100% cotton, It was being manufactured in the United States using 100% indigo dye. Denim itself is an interesting fabric. Thick, tough, and durable, it washes well, holds its shape, and is hard to wear out, which made it the obvious fabric of choice for men's trousers, and then again for quilts. The majority of quilts made using denim are what have been called utility quilts. Utility quilts are made to be used, and not for special occasions, but for the hard, dirty, mundane, day-after-day comforts of warmth and security. This kind of quilting was a necessity for rural living in the mid-1800s through the mid-1900s, and makes up a style of quilting that is interesting and beautiful in a way that differs from most other quilts. These quilts were assembled using denim and other textiles similar in weight or thickness, such as wool and other heavily worsted material. These rougher textured fabrics lent themselves to the creation of larger blocks, longer stitches, and were often tied off with thicker cord. The resulting quilts weren't necessarily examples of fine needlework and artistry, but they are, however, examples of hard work, ingenuity, and clever craftsmanship. The custom of making denim quilts didn't thrive only during the turn of the century. It is a tradition that has carried on. Because denim is so durable and prolific, it is a resource that has been provided quilters with fabric for generations, and usually in the form of squares cut from used blue jeans. Everyone has seen them, and many of us have them. Large quilts made from Levi squares sewn together, backed with durable fabric, and then tied with heavy yarn. Aren't they the best? You can drag them to the beach and the sand just shakes right off them. You can spread them out in a picnic and not worry about spills, because they wash right out. And the kids can use them to build forts without any worries of rips or tears. Denim quilts are practical quilts. In fact, we have one in our car, just in case of emergencies. And so, just like the iconic Levi Strauss blue jeans born of cotton, indigo, and copper, denim quilts born of necessity and used trousers have become an important piece of our American quilting culture. And a piece like the jeans they are cut from, they will never go out of style.
0: Jeans get washed over and over again. And while they hold their shape and stay durable, wear patterns will eventually begin to form. Faded knees begin to appear, the ghostly silhouette of a wallet will begin to show, and wrinkles around the pocket will become ingrained. Often when you see a well-worn pair of jeans, it will tell you the story, the habit, and the lifestyle of the one who wore them. Currently, I have a favorite pair of jeans. There's a salsa stained by one pocket, A smear of paint by the hole in the knee, and more often than not, they are covered in little thread clippings. But they're my favorite, and I wear them often with my trusty Converse sneakers. I'm not a complicated person. I like what I like, and what I like best is my family, tradition, and a good day's worth of work. Maybe that's why I'm so drawn to denim quilts the quilts sewn together from a fabric that just doesn't know when to quit from jeans that reflect the personality of those who wore them and that continue to give warmth and support to others in its own humble and sturdy way. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that for me, Neil Diamond is right. Whether we are wearing them as pants or wrapped up in them as a quilt, we're all going to do okay forever in blue jeans.
1: For more stories, projects, and quilt tutorials, visit us over at www.simplesimonandco.com where you can find scores of quilting patterns and inspiration. Thanks for listening, and if you have a minute, please leave us a comment or a review, especially if you are listening on iTunes. It only takes a few clicks, but helps us out a lot. Now, stay tuned for I've Got a Notion.
0: Hey, welcome to I've Got a Notion, our new segment here at the end of Stitched, where we get to tell you the facts and histories behind some of your favorite sewing notions. Up on deck today, pinking shears. Pinking shears are simply a pair of scissors that have sawtooth shaped blades rather than straight ones, and when used for cutting, leave a neat and tidy zigzag edge. This zigzag edge is useful when cutting woven cloth which tends to fray. While the use of pinking shears does not stop the cloth from fraying, it does minimize the damage by shortening the lengths of the fraying thread. Pinking shears were designed in 1931 by Samuel Briskman from Brooklyn. However, it's unclear how they were given their name. Some historians claim they were given the name pinking due to the historical meaning of the word pink, which meant to pierce, stab, or make holes in. Others claim the name comes from pink carnations that have a similar scalloped edge to their petals. And finally, one last theory believes that the term pinking was coined on Saville Row, a street in Mayfair, London, that was famous for their men's tailoring and that used the term pinking to refer to precision and care when referring to their scissors. And it is this later theory that may be the most correct, because while Briskman patented the pinking shears that we know today, it was Louise Austin from Wascombe, Washington who procured the first patent on a pair of scissors called pinking scissors, nearly 35 years prior to Briskman and during the rise of Saville Rose popularity. Pinking shears came on the market during the Great Depression here in the United States, and their popularity helped give jobs to those who worked in the various factories to create them. But that isn't the end of their story. Later, in 1952, A Benjamin Luscalo from Chicago, Illinois was granted a patent that would revolutionize pinking shears. He had found a way to adjust the tension on the shears, which would keep the teeth of the blades carefully aligned and thus make the cuts neater, cleaner, and more efficient. Plus that slick alignment made the shears so much easier to use. Since 1952, not much has changed in pinking shear technology. And with the rise of synthetic fibers that don't fray and the accessibility of sergers, one would think that pinking shears would have fallen out of common use, but not so. Pinking shears still remain a staple in sewing boxes across America. We hope you've enjoyed today's version of I've Got a Notion. And until next time, happy quilting.